Hey there, and welcome to the Multiply Church podcast. Multiply Church exists to glorify God through multiplying disciples in our neighborhoods and the nations. We are so thankful you've decided to utilize this audio resource and pray it will help you develop a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. However, this audio resource cannot and should not replace your participation in a local church. Our prayer is that this will simply serve as a supplement to the faithful preaching, teaching, and community you receive within your local church. If you are not involved in a local church, we would love to connect with you. Please visit our website at multiplychurch.church and click connect and fill out our connect form. We will get back with you as soon as possible and would love to have you visit with us on a Sunday morning or become involved in one of our missional communities. Now, let's dig into God's Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. May He turn His face toward you and give you peace. Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad you are here with us at Multiply Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 John. We're actually having the joy of finishing 1 John this morning. And I don't know about you, but this has been, um, the Spirit just, when the Spirit does things, you just know. And one of the things that um, Zach and Curtis and I were talking about this week, even as we gathered like we do every week, was just the powerful impact that First John has had on us. Um, I, I can't tell you how differently I look at the world and love people based on what I've learned through First John. I've, I've, I've felt personally transformed by what God is doing through the preaching of the Word. And what's funny is uh, a lot of times I'll be up here preaching and the Lord will transform me while I'm preaching up here if He hasn't already. And so it's just been really cool to see how He has used this and to hear your testimonies of what God has done in your life through this. Because one of the things I'm convinced of and we are convinced of here at Multiply Church is that people change as the Holy Spirit convicts them and empowers them through the Word being preached, being taught, being read, being actually ingested, like actually where you, you actually let it sink down deep into your heart and let it be the, the, the way in which you live your life. You see it, you see everything through the lens of God's Word. And so it's beautiful to me to hear all the stories, the wonderful stories that I've heard from you. Just as you've said, this was an aha moment. This was an incredible way to define love that I'd never thought about. Oh, I'd never thought about loving my neighbor in this way. And so it's been really cool to hear all those stories and how God is using this text in you. But we are going to be in verses 13 through 21, the very end. And if I had a title this morning, it would be What We Know Because of 1 John. What We Know Because of 1 John. Um, this will not be the last of our Epistles of John series. We're going to do 2 John and 3 John and then kick into Advent. But as we end 1 John, I think it's important to take a look back and say, what have we learned? Um, one of the things we have learned is that we're to walk in the light together. That, that we shouldn't, God doesn't fear our sin, and we shouldn't fear the sins of our brothers and sisters. We should walk in the light together, and we shouldn't be afraid to, to bring our dirty laundry out before community and before God together. Because it's important that we walk in the light together as He is in the light and have fellowship with one another. And know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. And He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our sins if we simply confess them. And so it's beautiful that we see that in 1 John 1. He also teaches us that we are children 
uh, of the Father. Behold, what love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We see this beauty of adoption that we have. And then we see that, that not only is God light, He's holy, He's perfect, he, he shines into the darkness to reveal the truth, but He is also love, that He is the epitome of love, that He teaches us how we ought to love. And then we come to the final part of this book, or this letter, And we hear reiterated again the main theme that John wants us to hear in all of this, that this God who is light and who is love is knowable, that we can know him. The main thing this morning, if if I had a main thing, would be we can know God who answers prayer, gives us victory over sin, and leads us to the truth. We can know God who answers prayer, gives us victory over sin, and leads us to the truth. The truth. So let's dig into the word this morning, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Lord, thank You that almost two millennia ago um, that You chose Holy Spirit to prick John's heart to write this to the church, that we would be able to look 2,000 years later back and see how this still profoundly impacts our lives. That, Jesus, you are still king. You are still Lord. You are still the true God and eternal life. And that, Lord, that's what we found our faith upon. And Lord, I pray that this morning, if one in this room does not know that you are the true God and eternal life, that they would come to know that truth this morning, that it would transform the entirety of their being, that they could not walk away the same, that you'd change them in their seats. And Lord, for those of us who would say you are, Jesus, the true God and eternal life, we know you. May this edify us. May it encourage us more to good works. And may it more than ever encourage us to seek out our not yet believing neighbors with this truth and the nations. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the beautiful parts of this text is uh, I love, Zach kind of stole the thunder a little bit getting into it. So I'm not going to go too much into verse 13. But verse 13 says that I write these things to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you went back to 1 John 1, verse 4, John gives a reason he's writing, and he says, I am writing these things to you so that our or your joy may be complete. 
And now he's coming back here and he's saying, I'm writing these things to you that you may, that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you, may have, that you may know that you have eternal life. These are forming bookends. I don't know if you understand what bookends are. It, I actually believe it or not, until we read a book last year, I had never really thought about the concept of bookends, like they're what you put on the end of your bookshelf. I know. It took 28 years or 29 years to figure that out, but I found it, I figured it out. The bookend here, though, is incredible because it's saying in the beginning, John is writing that our joy may be complete. But how is our joy complete? Look at verse 13, through knowing Jesus. Our joy is complete through knowing Jesus. That is a beautiful picture of the truth. We know that we have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we know eternal life himself. In verse 21, it says that he is the true God and eternal life. Excuse me, verse 20, it says that he's the true God and eternal life. It is only through Christ that we have life eternal. And it's beautiful to me that John decides to set up these bookends in this way to remind us that knowing Jesus equals true joy. It equals true happiness. It actually also equals the way in which we can truly love in the way that God has called us to, to love. And so it's beautiful to me that he ends that way. But not only th- th- through this do we know that we have eternal life through faith in Christ, we know that God hears and answers our prayer. I want you to think about this because for me, sometimes when I think about prayer, I, I have a misconception. Because a lot of the times I think that prayer is about what I want not about what I need. And if I get to the core of prayer and I say prayer is about coming to the Father to be with Him, it's not necessarily just petitioning, but it's, a, it's an act of adoration for this God of the universe. It's where I can come to Him and confess my worth and my unworthiness, as one of the songs we sing says. It's where I can come and give thanks for all the beautiful pictures of his grace that I see in my life and it's also where I can come and, and, and petition him for things but if I miss adoration confession and thanksgiving before I move to petition I've missed some of the most beautiful parts of prayer because prayer is not meant to just be be throwing up I need this God or I want this it's to be with him to to be in constant conversation with him And also, the beauty of being a child of God means that we actually have a seat at the table with the Father. We have a seat at the table with the Father. And the reason I bring that up is because sometimes I think we come to God with this timidness, this timidity that that just overpowers and, and actually makes us condescend. It's like, I don't know if I can bring this before God, but he's a loving father. He's a loving father who asks us to be in community with with him, to be in communion with him. And one of the beautiful pictures of that is the fact that he is a father to us. We've learned that. Behold what love the father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. A lot of the the times I think about God as a father, I, I can often think about my own life growing up um, and thinking about, did I have, and my dad's in the room, so I can, I can talk about this, but 
my, did I have a seat at the table with my dad? Did my dad care for my needs? Did he meet me where I was? Did he listen to me? Did he come? Did he wrap me up when I fell down? Did he wrap me up when I was scared of mom because I thought she was going to kill me for something? He did. And then he also, but the one thing about dad too is uh, I knew when he was angry, uh, I'd done something really dumb. But his, his anger towards me and his hurt towards me and his discipline towards me was always for my good. And what I learn about God when we come to him in prayer, even through just, and, and knowing my dad and all of our fathers were imperfect, knowing that my dad shows me a picture of what the father is like. In just a physical way, I get to see this expression that he hears me. That when I would ask a question, there was no question that was too dumb for him not to answer. And it's the same with God. He hears and answers our petitions. Look at verses 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, that English is a little weird there, I understand, but I'll, I'll parse this out for you. There's a couple things that we need to understand here that John is asking us to do. He's asking us to pray in accordance with the Father's will. He's asking us to basically pray what Jesus prayed. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's asking us to pray in accordance with God's will and ask the Lord to change our hearts to pray in accordance with his will. Because I'm going to be quite frank with you. I am fleshly. I want certain things. I desire certain things that are not in line with God's will for my life. And so I'm asking him, Lord, help me to pray in your will. Help me to know your will. And God, where I don't, align my heart and use even my fleshly desires to move in this direction. Knowing that if I'm asking, Lord, help me, that he is also praying on my behalf. Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate who knows how to pray when we don't know how to pray. And so knowing that as I'm praying, Holy Spirit, Jesus, I don't know how to pray. Please pray for me. Teach me how I should pray in this moment. And knowing when I do that, that he grants that petition because he loves to grant according to his will. Verse 15 says this, and if, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If we pray in accordance with his will, we are always going to receive what we ask for. If we pray in accordance with His will, we're always going to receive what we ask for because it's going to come to pass in light of His will. And so what we need to ask is, Father, not my will, but Yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. And knowing that because of that, He hears and answers our intercession for others as well. Not only does He answer our petitions for ourselves, for our lives, but He answers in our intercession for others. Look at verses 16 through 17 here. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is the sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. I want to be honest with you. This whole sin that leads to death thing and all this, it kind of threw me off. I'm not going to lie. I spent like 
probably an hour on these phrases alone, searching commentary, searching all this stuff. And what I discovered in this is that there is a mixed opinion of what this means. So I'm going to give you, by the Spirit's leading and guidance, what I feel to be the best interpretation of what this is saying. So I could be wrong here. I'll say that. But I'm going to ask you in your hearts to, to just say, Lord, teach me what is true here. So he hears and answers our intercession for others. First, verse 16 says this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. We're to intercede for brothers and sisters in sin. When we see brothers and sisters in sin, we intercede for them, knowing that God can and will restore them. I don't know about you, but there have been many people in my life who I've seen walk closely with Jesus, just deeply in love with Him, who through various circumstances, suffering, trials, have been just completely decimated in their faith. Because they're like, God just does not seem to relent. He doesn't seem to relent. And Curtis, I was talking with him about a, a situation this week, and I, I was talking about um, saying, God, why won't you relent? And Curtis reminded me that it's a grace that God doesn't relent. Because it means he's still there. He's still moving, and it's for his glory and our good. And one of the beautiful things about this passage is that we have the opportunity when we see brothers and sisters in sin, to pray for them, to intercede for them, to say, Lord, I know only you can change this person. I can't. I can't change their hearts. And trust me, if I could change people's hearts, I would all day long. But I would do a bad job of it. And so would you. Because we don't know how exactly we need to change their hearts in a lot of ways. And so we have to ask God, change their hearts. Help them to see that what they're doing is not good for their soul, for their walk with you, Jesus, for, for their life, for their family, for their friends, for their church. Lord, help them to see that this is not good. And Lord, restore them and help use me. Use me to help restore them and reconcile them. Teach me how to do that. Teach me how to have the hard conversations when they're in sin, with love and grace, but just saying, this is sin. Please help me. Also, in this text, we can see that we're to intercede for not yet believers, asking God to give them life if it is His will. One of the things I understand is I can't change someone's heart who is a believer. I also most certainly cannot change someone's heart who's a not yet believer. I could preach at them until I'm blue in the face and they would probably be angry at me. But if the Holy Spirit... God the Spirit comes in and regenerates their heart. Gives them the ability to see Jesus for who He is and have faith in Him as Savior and Lord. That's what we're asking for. God, save this person if it's your will, but if it's not, your will be done and it's for your glory. I don't get it. But in your economy, this is the way it works. And so I'm okay with that because you're God and I'm not. But we need to all the time be coming I, I can think of neighbors right now in my mind by name that my wife and i constantly pray god save this person save this person save this person save this person please save them and if it's by your grace that we're using that praise god but by any means necessary save them be the hound of heaven if it takes breaking them break them but save them 
whatever you need to do. But Lord, we petition you knowing that it's in accordance with your will that they are saved. And so we're going to trust you in this and trust that you are good. I know that we talked about the sin that leads to death here. It talks about this um, really in verses 16 and 17. um, To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, and then there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that that one should pray for that. Um, there's a lot of different understandings of that, but the sin that leads to death in the context of 1 John is outright disbelief in Christ, which results in hate of him and others. Outright disbelief in Christ that results in hate of him and others. And no one is neutral when it comes to Jesus. I think uh, think Zach did an incredible job of hitting this last week. Is Jesus your everything? There's nothing neutral about Jesus. Either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so we have to deal with this, and to not believe in Jesus is to hate him. We have to define that for what it is. It is to say, without any other way of putting it, that I am the God of my own life. That I can choose to be who I want to be, live how I want to live, and it's all okay because none of the rest matters. But yet, this word teaches us that this is entirely false. It's untrue. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And the sin that does not lead to death is the sin which has already been atoned for through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about here. At least in my opinion of what I understand from this text in the context of 1 John. You see, we pray for brothers and sisters who are committing sins that do not lead to death because the only sins that do not lead to death are the sins that have been atoned for. Because Jesus has died for them already and risen again victoriously. So not only do we know that we have eternal life through faith in Christ, not only do we know that God hears and answers our prayer, we know victory over sin. Look at verse 18. This is incredible to me. It says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. As adopted children, we lovingly obey our Father and do not keep on sinning. Now, I think what we need to understand here is that, is that saying that sin is completely eradicated from my life as a follower of Jesus? Absolutely not. I wish it was that way, but God is sanctifying us, and he will one day glorify us in such a way that we are no longer bound by sin. But what, I, what John is saying here is that sin is no longer the pattern of our lives. It's no longer the pattern of our lives. John is affirming the purity of our lives, not the perfection of our lives. A couple of weeks ago, I showed a graph of what sanctification looks like, and it looked a little bit like this, but there's always an upward motion, right? Like the end, we're looking in a trajectory this way. We're wanting to be more like Jesus. And it looks different through different phases and different stages of life, but the goal is still one and the same. We want to see purity in our lives. We want to see holiness. But we also know that this side of heaven, there is no way we're escaping from sin's grasp other than through the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit literally transforming and killing our sin so that we may live unto God. And uh, I love how John Owen says, says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the truth. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And the only way we do that is through coming time and time again to the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus paid it all, and now I have life because of this and through your resurrection. It says this, and it gets a little confusing here. It says, but he who was born of God protects him. I like how the HCSB says this, the one who is born of God keeps him. 
the one who is born of God. It's pointing to Jesus here. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but Jesus protects him. Jesus protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. I love that. We do not keep ourselves. Jesus keeps us. We are held in his right hand. There is nothing that can take us away from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not angels or principalities, life, death, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. He keeps us. He holds us firmly. He purchases and maintains our salvation. It's the beauty of 1 Peter 1, if you go and read that, that he's holding us. You see, Satan may grab at us and tempt us through doubt through friends who fall away, idols, fleshly enticements, and worldly allurements. But because of the power of Christ, he cannot get us. He cannot get us. Christ holds us steadfastly and eternally. He holds us. So, we know that we have victory over sin, but we also have victory over the enemy through Jesus. We also know that we belong to God. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil. And you see, the whole world rests in the power of the enemy. It's enslaved to sin and the evil one. And we are in a cosmic conflict with an enemy who influences and in any, many instances controls cultures, societies, finances, and even governments. You could... Read about what's going on in Guatemala right now in the elections, and you will quickly see the hand of Satan. This evil empire under the sway of the evil one opposes with vehemence the advancement of the gospel. He hates it. He doesn't want to see it. That's why we have so many closed countries where, in which the gospel, if you preach the gospel, you're going to jail or you're losing your life over it. I can think of a couple off the top of my head that just, you cannot go into that country and preach the gospel unless you're willing to go and die. And yet, God is moving profoundly in those countries. You see, believers in Jesus have a certain and settled knowledge that they are God's. They're His. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I love what the NIV says here. It says that we know that we are children of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know who our family is. We know that God is our father. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message. We know that we are held firm by God. That we're in his loving embrace. That, that the enemy can swipe at us. He can try to kill us. He can try to do all things, but God is holding us firmly. In fact, even if we were to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel, I love how the New City Catechism asks this for children. The first question, this is for kids, and Alyssa and I have tried to instill this in Emerson. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. So simple a child can embrace that. We're not our own, but we belong to God. As we move forward with a wartime mentality, we are children of God. And this God 
who is in us and who is greater than the evil one protects us. We are his and he will protect us. The only kingdom losing souls is the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness is losing. The kingdom of light is growing. The kingdom of God is growing. The kingdom of God advances and grows each day. It is growing in this moment, even now around the world. And eternal victory is secure in Jesus Christ. When we look to the end and we see Jesus returning in Revelation, it's simply Him opening His mouth and all the kingdom of darkness is defeated in one fell swoop. Jesus is King and we belong to Him. We are His. And so we know the truth in Christ. That's the last point. Look at verses 20 through 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. This in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because of our union with Christ, we understand the truth of the gospel. We are safe from the claws of the evil one. We know the Father and we abide in the true one that is in His Son, Jesus Christ. We abide in Him. We live in Him. We, we, we wake and we go to bed with Him. And there's not a moment in our lives in which He is not profoundly present. In the minutia, in the incredible, magnificent parts of life, He's there. And He's for you. And He's protecting you. He is the true God. But as, jo- as, as John would inform us here, because we're so quick to probably miss 21, there's a reason that, that John writes, little children, this is a, a term of endearment, as a, an elder statesman in the faith coming and looking at children and saying, hey, listen to this. Keep yourselves from idols. Your heart, as John Calvin would say, is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. It just keeps on building things. Tim Keller has a lot of good writing on this. I would, I would say go and read what he says about idolatry. Idolatry is making a good thing a God thing. Um, he has a couple of different definitions of what it is. But if there is a true God, there are also false gods. Idolatry is anything you love, enjoy, and pursue more than God. And you have to deal with that. You have to ask yourself the questions... Lord, where have I made for myself idols? How am I giving my life to these things other than to the glory and magnificence of God? How am I living in such a way that I'm seeking to know these things rather than you, God? And we have to ask ourselves that. So what John is saying here is guard yourself from the idols of power, control, comfort, approval, which is hard for me, position, applause, and pleasure. Your heart will never be satisfied or at rest with any of these little false gods. You will spend your life wasting away. You will waste your life pursuing things other than God to never find the contentment or joy or fulfillment that you desire. Because there is only one true place that we find joy, contentment, peace. That's in Jesus Christ. Only Christ truly and eternally satisfies us. And that's what we learn from 1 John. That this one who truly and eternally satisfies us 
we know personally because He is here. He has come. And so as you ponder these truths this morning, knowing that you have eternal life through faith in Christ, if you are a believer, knowing that God hears and answers your prayers, knowing victory over sin and the evil one, belonging to God, and knowing the truth in Christ, I have to ask this. How does being held firmly by God inform how you engage a dark world? How does being held firmly by God inform how you engage a dark world? And lastly, how has God used 1 John to transform you? How has God used this text and the preaching of this text by the power of the Spirit to transform you right where you are right now? And I don't think this is something you just take and you, you ask right now. I think it's something you, you take and you ask in the car riding to lunch or going home. It's something you ask in your missional community. How has, how has God transformed you through 1 John? I think it's something you ask personally. God, how have you used this to make me more into your image?